Well, this morning we're blessed to uh, have our pastor of student ministries, James Barvalitos, uh, come and open the Word of God. And I know that it has been a uh, very uh, taxing week for him. Uh, I know that his daughter has been ill, but we praise God that his uh, daughter is feeling better now and he's been in and out of the hospital. So we hope that you'll continue to pray for him and his family and uh, want to invite him up here. Oh, and before we do so, uh, I was told there were a few lost and found items. Um, this is a sippy cup and, uh, uh, and a booklet full of uh, sermon notes all the way back to, um, I think, uh, 2010. So if you uh, own either of these, please come and pick them up later on. James, come open the word. Thank you, Pastor Joe. Yeah, the, usually the lost and found is like a book or socks. There's no, no shame in the sermon note thing. Just, that's, that's great. That's, wow, 2010. Well, it is indeed a pleasure. It's, it's wonderful to see you all here this morning as we, we look into the, the wonders of God's Word and, and seek to know Him and grow in Him together. And yes, I do just want to extend a, just a, uh, a word of thanks for your prayers. Our, our little one is feeling much better. I think she's actually in the nursery now, and um, she's, uh, she's recovering. And so, um, yes, thank you for your prayers. We do appreciate it. Well, this morning we'll be continuing uh, our study of, of the book of Colossians. When the, uh, Pastor Joe gives me an opportunity to preach, we've been uh, studying this book verse by verse together, opening up God's Word to see uh, what He has to say uh, to us and how we can grow in our, in our knowledge of Him. And in thinking about these things, uh, I, was, I was reminded about uh, the great theologian uh, Martin Luther this week. It was the evening of uh, April 17th, 1521, and Martin Luther, as I mentioned, he, he was faced with a difficult question. He was uh, in the room that he had been put in, and, and he had been summoned to this town uh, by the Catholic Church, by the church, uh, to appear before a council who uh, was questioning some of the things that he had been teaching and writing about. And the whole purpose of the council was to ask him whether he uh, would continue to affirm the things that he taught or uh, whether he would recant and, and, and change his mind and change his teaching. Earlier in the day, he had appeared before them and, and they put uh, out on a table in front of him a stack of copies of, of his writings and books and sermons that had been copied and sent out throughout uh, Germany and other places. And they asked him pointedly... Did you write these? And they knew that he did, and he affirmed them. And then he, they said, do you still affirm the teachings um, which uh, lie inside them? And then upon uh, talking to some counselors, he asked them if he could pray about it and spend the evening thinking. And so here he was, he was in his room, thinking about the question that he was faced knowing that his answer would have a direct impact on his life, and not his only, but those who believed in what he was teaching. It could uh, impact people's livelihood. He knew persecution would most likely ensue. I can't but help wonder the things that he considered. I'm sure he spent time in prayer, but he, I'm sure he considered, am I right? Is this right? Is my understanding of what the foundation of Christianity is? Do I understand Scripture right? So the next day, he once again appeared before this, this council, and they asked him the same question. Do you affirm what is in these writings before you? 
And Luther apologized at first for the harsh tone of some of the writings. And I don't know if you've read some of them, but they can be quite harsh at times. But he said he couldn't reject their teachings. And boldly said, quote, Unless I am convinced by proofs from Scripture, by plain and clear reasons and arguments, I cannot and will not retract. For it is neither safe nor wise to do anything against conscience. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. You see, that day Martin Luther affirmed the teachings of what continue to be the pillars of Protestant theology today. Things like salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. Yet today it still seems that there's confusion about what Christianity is all about, what true religion is all about. And we're reminded about that this is not a new struggle, but God's message to us is very clear through His Word. What does it mean to have a right relationship with God? What does it mean to be a Christian? What took place? What, what makes us who we are? Well, this morning as we examine uh, the book of Colossians, Paul gives a vibrant description of the glorious works of God in the heart of every believer and gives us what an essence is. It's the essence of our faith, the essence of Christianity. And he writes and explains them because... In knowing them, they should be the foundation of joyous thanksgiving in the heart of every believer. If you recall from our previous times together, uh, the book of Colossians was, it was written from, during Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. And uh, Colossae, which is where the, the letter was written to, is, lo- is, a, is a church in, is located in Asia Minor. And it was not started by Paul. In fact, at this point as he was writing that he had actually never even met them. The only person that he had met most likely from there was a man named Epaphras who uh, was the pastor of the church. And at this time, Epaphras went to Rome to visit Paul while he was in prison. And and while he was there, like pastors do, he shared with him the the things that were going on in his church. The struggles, the trials, the the strengths and and questions that they faced. And so Paul, as as an apostle and a respected leader, uh, pens this letter to them to encourage them. And also to give them some instruction. And as he opens up the letter, he, pray, he, he lets them know that he prays to the Lord with thanksgiving. He praises God for the faith of the Colossians. On how God has worked in their hearts. And that the gospel has penetrated into them to bear fruit. And the fruit that it was bearing is known to anybody who came in contact with them. Through the love that they show them. Not just for each other, but for all of the saints. He then continues and and he says that he he prays for them that they would continue to grow in the knowledge of God's will and be strengthened so that they would walk worthy in the manner of the name which they bear. Followers and servants of Jesus Christ. He prayed that they would persevere and, and know what it means to be strong under trial so they would grow in the Lord. See, the thing is, although they were separated by thousands of years and culture, in many respects, you know, the Colossian believers, they're just like you and I. Right? They had families to care for. They, had, they needed jobs to pay the bills. And they were surrounded by people who didn't understand the faith that they had. 
They were surrounded by people who, in fact, not only didn't understand it, but hated it and persecuted it. And certainly they uh, experienced that probably more than most of us will. So Paul prays and he, and he says, I am praying that you would stand strong and walk worthy. And not only that, but have an attitude of joy for your faith. Because of what God has done for you. And what has God done for you? What has God done for them? Well, that's the topic that we are going to examine this morning. So if you haven't, please turn to Colossians chapter 1. Our text will be um, beginning uh, in verse 12, although we'll, we'll start in verse 9 just so we understand the context. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's bow in in a word of prayer. Father, as we open up uh, your word this morning, I pray that uh, you would illuminate our our minds, fill our hearts with your truth, Lord, that we would know you more and know what it means to serve and walk in a way that is indeed worthy of you with joy and thanksgiving. Father, bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. So after, in in verses 9 through 11, Paul describes what it means to walk worthy of your faith, what it means to walk worthy as a Christian. He then notes that part of walking worthy is having a lifestyle of joyous thanksgiving to God the Father for what He has done in your life. In a sense, as as this comes to his mind, as he starts talking about having thanksgiving, in a sense, it's almost like a hymn of of praise and thanksgiving just comes to his mind and starts pouring forth in his pen. As he thinks about the wondrous works of God. And in so doing, Paul efficiently describes the essence of our faith, describes Christianity, describes the hope that we all share as believers. Have you ever been asked by someone just to, to explain your faith, to explain Christianity, what it is that you believe, or why you live the way you do? And, and not in a sense of a, a deep theological discussion, but just maybe a coworker or a family member, somebody who doesn't understand. Maybe for students, it's a, a friend at school. Just like, I don't understand. What, what's Christianity all about? Or maybe you've heard something that maybe a, a teacher or coworker says Christianity is all about, and, and you're like, hmm, I don't think that's quite right. If you haven't, or, or, or you've wanted a, a, a better understanding, then this passage this morning is for you. Because in two and a half verses, Paul gives a summary of the Christian hope, the Christian faith. What it is to be a Christian and why we are the way we are. His intent here is not to describe Christianity. His intent, in fact, is to remind believers of the work of God in their life. And why that work of God should cause a joyous thanksgiving in your life, an attitude of humility and joy 
However, if you pay attention and you examine these works, you see the reason for our great hope. And it can kind of be broken down into, into to three aspects. Can you remember this? If you can remember this, you'll be well on your way. Okay? It, in essence, Christianity is about where you were, where you are, and where you are going. That's pretty simple. It pretty much sums up life, doesn't it? To be able to explain the essence of the Christian hope, you first have to explain where you were, then you give an account to people why you're doing the things you're doing, where you are, and also so much of our faith has to do with where we are going. And so as we talk about a lifestyle of thanksgiving and joy and why we should give thanks to God, I hope you see this thread woven out through these verses. Because it's good to know these things, to be able to explain to others. But you know what else? It's also good to remind yourself. Because times get tough. Times get tough, don't they? And sometimes we, we need to remind ourselves about the hope that we have and what it really means to be a Christian and why we believe the things we do. Unlike all good things, it begins with God. It begins with God. And so this morning we're, we're going to see three works of God which should produce joyful thanksgiving in the life of every believer. Three works of God which should produce joyful thanksgiving in the life of every believer. In truth, there are only two religions in the world. There are only two. It may seem like there's more. In fact, if you pull out some sort of encyclopedia of religions, it's probably yay thick and ever-growing more each day. But in reality, there's only two religions in the world. One religion, which seeks to know God, to seek after God according to works. The other religion, that seeks to be reconciled to God through faith in Him. And faith in God. The religions of works lay as its foundation on the backs of its followers, people trying to earn their way to God, to be good enough to get to God, to be good enough to, to be one with God. Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, the New Age movement, Mormonism, Roman Catholicism, it all seeks to get to God by doing things. Some of them might have a faith as a part of it, but it... it it all comes back to what you've done for God. The other religion, the true, the only true religion, is, is based on faith. And it's not about what you've done for God, but about what God has done for you and believing in Him. The religion of faith exalts God. It is about Him. It is about Him and His glory and what He has done for us. It's true, in our religion of faith, works play a very important and even authenticating part of it. Works are good, but is not the foundation of why we do them. We are not trying to earn our way to God. That's impossible by any definition. Our works are driven not to earn His favor, but out of gratitude for all that He's already done for us. And what has God done for us? Well, Paul gives a, a wonderful description here. If you are a Christian, then, the first work of God is that God has delivered you from the domain of darkness. God has delivered you from the domain of darkness. This is the where you were part, okay? Verse 13, Colossians 1. 
Paul states it clearly. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Which begs the obvious question, what is the domain of darkness? Right? It's not just simply being stuck on 405 during rush hour in the rain. Although it might seem like it. What is darkness? Well, Scripture uses dark, the metaphor for darkness for a number of different things. Most of which, it, it, it speaks of a, a, a spiritual deadness. Lack of any sort of spiritual knowledge or truth. And sometimes it just is used to speak of evil. Sin, evil works, darkness. Someone in darkness lacks spiritual understanding and is immersed in sin and is in rebellion against God. Now, granted, sometimes it doesn't seem like that, but it's truth. It is truth. You don't have to be a mass murderer to be in darkness because any sin is in rebellion against God. John, the Apostle John, gives a good explanation of this in 1 John 2.11 when he writes, Whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You see, darkness is a lifestyle. You don't understand what the true purpose of life is. You have no life in you. And you're in rebellion against God. In fact, you're a slave to your sin and slave to darkness. Jesus uses a similar metaphor when he often called the Pharisees blind guides. You see, those Pharisees were supposed to be the ones leading people to truth, enlightening them to the truths of God and what it meant to reconcile, to be reconciled to God and know God, except they themselves didn't know, and so they were leading others, although they were in darkness. And they had a love for evil. They had a love of worship of themselves and to do the things they wanted instead of what God wanted. This is the domain of darkness. The Greek word for domain here is exclusius, and it means power, actually. It's like authority or or power. And so, in a sense, you could understand this as, as God has delivered you from the power of darkness. Darkness is an epidemic. It's an epidemic, and it spread to all men the moment sin entered into the world. It's an illness which is fatal. And every person who is born is born into darkness. And they're enslaved. And and this darkness is, is the driving force between all sin and rebellion against God. This is the domain of darkness. And the prince of this domain, the prince of this kingdom, as it were, is Satan himself. He sits enthroned and is opposed to anything that is good. Anything that is wholesome or holy. And it's this darkness, in fact, that most opposed Christ's work on earth and His ministry on earth. And still does today. In fact, please uh, flip with me to Luke chapter 22 and we'll see a good example of this. At this point in Jesus' ministry, we're in the very last hours of His life before He gets crucified. He's had the Last Supper. He's in the garden. Judas has just betrayed him with a kiss. Peter has just cut off the poor ear of Malchus. And Jesus is about to be arrested by the temple guard. Looking down 
Well, we'll begin in verse 52. So they're in the garden, and Jesus says to them, Luke 22:52. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. That phrase there in the Greek, it's identical to what Paul just says that we were delivered from. The domain of darkness, the power of darkness. You see, the Pharisees were influenced and under the control of darkness, of sin. They hated anything. They wanted to stamp out anything that might represent life and light and goodness. And it's still the same today. Darkness opposes our great Lord and Savior with every ounce of its being and opposes Him and worships itself. The problem is that this domain of darkness leads to destruction. It's not a path of life. It's a path that leads straight to the pit of hell. The Bible is clear that the wages of sin is death and that God will destroy all those who oppose Him. In fact, Christ Himself describes this this punishment as outer darkness, where there's no light in life at all. It's interesting. It's like the people who are in darkness want to stay in darkness and rebel against God. And so God almost, in a sense, allows them to because they don't, but they have no understanding that this place, outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, is horrific. It's horrific. It's a place of torment where all the goodness of God is removed. And people don't understand this today. They think they're pretty much good. They think they're going to make it on their own and that God is loving and forgiving and that He'll just wink an eye at sin. These people are your unbelieving friends and your family members, the people at the store you bump into. They enjoy God's common grace, the sunshine, the seasons, the the cool breeze on a summer day. Not knowing that they are infected with sin and in the domain of darkness on a path of hopelessness and punishment under the wrath of God for what they've done. You know what? This was you. This was you. You were under that domain. You were a slave in darkness, hating God, not knowing where you were going, but heading to a path of destruction. And this was Paul, as a Jew who hated God and and rejected the Messiah, and with every ounce of his being went from house to house arresting people who proclaimed Jesus. This was the Colossian believers who were in a, a society full of pagan worship. They were enslaved to it, but then something happened. God in His goodness did a work in their life. God in His goodness did a work in your life if you're a Christian. And all of a sudden, light came bursting forth in the realm of darkness that was your your heart. And it enlightened your mind to understand what the true meaning of life is. And this light that came bursting forth is Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. He says again in, in John eight twelve, a familiar verse that you know, I am the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Do you have this life? Do you know Jesus? If you have faith in Christ, that means He's opened your eyes to understand the world, to understand life in a whole different meaning, one that you never understood before. In a sense, it's like a blind man having his eyes opened to be able to see and comprehend everything for the first time without any pain. Can you imagine that? Being in darkness your whole life and then your eyes being opened to see the brilliant colors and the glory of creation for the first time. To see things how you were intended to see them. And it's better than you could have ever imagined. This is the work that God has done in your life. He showed you your illness. He healed you through the work of His Son on the cross. He delivered, He rescued you from this domain of darkness, freeing you from that tyranny. And this should cause us to have thanksgiving and joy in our life. And what does it mean practically? Well, since you've been delivered from that, don't return to that. Don't return to that. If you're a Christian, then darkness should never characterize your life or the actions that you do. Resist it. Flee from it. Hate it. Fight it with every ounce of your being. It makes me think like a, like a, a former uh, alcoholic might uh, view alcohol. Right? If they've been ensnared in that and they got away, then what do they do? They, they, it's not in their house. They stay away from it. They don't go to places that it's, it's uh, glorified or, or, or in abundance. They stay away from it so that they might not be tempted. Because you know what? Even like alcohol to, to us, even though we're saved, sin can be appealing. It can be enticing. Even the book of James mentions that. And so because you've been rescued from this domain, do all that you can to avoid it. And if you fail... You repent and ask God for forgiveness, and He will. And you help each other. You help each other. That's what He's called us as believers to do. The first work of God in your life is He's he's delivered us from the domain of darkness. The second is this. God has not only delivered you from the domain of darkness, He's transferred you to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Verse 13, flipping back to Colossians. Colossians 1.13 He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. In, a different, in addition to just delivering you, He's transferred you to another place. The Greek word for transferred here, it means actually to, to be changed or, or removed. And it was actually used in the ancient world to refer to a conquered people who had been uh, removed or taken captive and placed in another area. And we see this even in the Old Testament, like the Jews were taken into captivity into Babylon. And, and, and Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that was them. They were, they were captive. And this is what God has done for you. Through His Son, He's conquered death. And He has removed you and placed you into the kingdom of His beloved Son. The kingdom of righteousness. In a sense, God took you captive. And He put you in a new kingdom, which is not under the sway of Satan or darkness, but under the sway of His beloved Son. And Paul describes this well in Ephesians 4.8. He says, in, in quoting his Psalms, When He, Christ, descended on high, He led captive a host of captives. And he gave gifts of men, gave gifts to men. 
That's what he did. Is when, when he saved you, he took you captive and brought you into his kingdom. It wasn't you going. It was him coming, seeking you out, getting you, conquering, and bringing you back. This moves to uh, where you were to the where you are now. And it's another reason to, to thank God and live joyously to Him. This kingdom that you've been transferred to, it's not just in the future. It exists now. You are currently in it if you're a Christian. It's literal. It exists now just like the domain of darkness exists now. And we can see that all around. The truth of it is that just like religion, there's only two kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of Christ. And there's no in between. You're either one or the other. If you're in darkness, then you're a slave to sin. And you know what? You bear the image of Satan. Because Satan and sin, are, they go together. We were created in the image of God, but because of sin we fell. And sin, people who sin, live in sin, they bear the image of Satan. But you've been freed. You've been washed. And now you've been transformed transferred into Christ's glorious kingdom and now you bear the image of Christ. This is why you do good. This is why you seek to serve Him. Not to earn it. You can't earn it and you're already there. It's existing. You do it out of gratitude for what He has done for you. And when I speak of joy, I'm not speaking of a false happiness and we've seen that. Just so that life's all roses and, and happy, you know. Life's hard. Life's hard. Right? Sometimes you, 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 you lose your job. Sometimes you get sick or your kids get sick. doesn't mean that you're a Christian, that life is going to be, you're going to be blessed with money and happiness. Right? Nobody knew this better than Paul, the one who was writing this. I mean, he was stoned, he was beaten, he was shipwrecked. He had everything in life taken away from him. And so what is this joy that he's talking about? He's talking about understanding what's really important in life and having a proper perspective, an eternal perspective. Because you are now a citizen of a new kingdom. And your hope is not in the things of this world. Paul later describes this in the book of Romans. He says, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. In other words, the things that... The world seeks after, but it's of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You see, once you've been brought into this new kingdom, you see life from a new perspective. And you see what's important. And though difficult times may come, you can still have joy in the Lord for what He has done for you. For all that He has done for you. And what does this mean practically? It means now, if you are in the new kingdom, then you should be about your master's business. That's what your life is about. You live in a way so that the world knows which kingdom you belong to. And maybe hopefully desires to be a part of it themselves. You live and you, you boastfully live for the Lord Jesus Christ as part of His kingdom. It's like a, a king in a servant's house. You know, many of you have different gifts. Many of you have different abilities and functioning within uh, the, the church body if you're a Christian. Right? Some of us are, are pastors or, or uh, teachers. Some of us are counselors. Some of us minister in so many different ways, whether it's hospitality, whether it's comfort, whether it's music. But it doesn't matter because we all serve the same king. 
You know, whether if you thinking even on earthly terms, if you're in a, in a serving in the, in the king's palace, whether you're the, the footman or the, the, the chauffeur or, or the, the coachman or whatever it might be, you don't care. To the world, if you, if you are, you know, if you do the king's laundry, that, doing laundry doesn't sound that glorious, but to you, you don't care because you're serving in the king's house and you take pride in serving in the king's house. You tell everyone, I, I do the king's laundry. It doesn't sound like a glorious job, but it's an important one, and one that, that honors the king. In the same way, you know what? We're all just servants in the king's household. We have different gifts. We boastfully proclaim, I serve the king. I don't care what he calls me to do. I'm going to do it and do it with joy. Finally, Paul, he continues on. Going back up to verse 12. And he says, giving thanks, Colossians 1.12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. The third thing that God has done for us is he has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. This is the where you're going part. You see that? He transferred you to the kingdom of His beloved Son and now now He's given you an inheritance. The Greek word for qualified, it means to, um, means to authorize or to meet a, a specific standard. God has qualified you to meet the standard of inheritance. What it means, if you think like if somebody uh, has certain... Um, qualifications or ability to, to allow them to do a job or, or say uh, uh, certain credentials that authorize them to, to be somewhere or to give authority kind of like say a security clearance or um, you know the president is authorized to sign bills I can't just go and say yeah that, that looks good from Congress I'll go ahead and sign that and I don't have those kind of credentials not yet anyway it means to, to meet a standard and the credentials to enter God's kingdom is perfect moral perfection, is holiness, is living and, and being a person without spot and blemish. You can't meet this standard on your own. You can't. God had to do it for you, and He did it through the work of His Son on the cross. In Him, you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. When He died on the cross, He took your sin, the punishment that you deserved, upon His shoulders and paid it. But not only that, His goodness, His perfection, His righteousness was given to you. And through your faith, God authorized or made you worthy of a heavenly inheritance. How great is our God. When Christ died, he paid, your, he paid the penalty for your sin. And then He came and He did a work in your heart and He took you captive. And He brought you into His, king, his kingdom and then you, you left being a slave of sin and now you became a slave of righteousness. But it's more than that. You see, slaves, slaves don't inherit things. Sons and daughters inherit things. God not only qualified you 
turned you from being his enemy, brought you into his kingdom, but adopted you as a son and daughter who will not only be with Him for eternity, but reign with Him for eternity. John writes again, verse one, uh, John 1, 11-12, He, being Jesus, came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. John writes again in 1 John 3, 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Our God is so good. He's brought us into His house when we weren't even worthy. And so this this causes Paul to just write and say, These type of truths should cause you to have a, a joyous lifestyle of thanksgiving to God. To be grateful for all that God has done for you. And He's given you an inheritance. And the word for inheritance, in this instance, it means actually a portion or a lot, oftentimes of land. In fact, it was used in the Old Testament frequently to describe the land that was going to be given to the twelve tribes of Israel in Canaan and how they would divide it. Each tribe would be given their lot or portion, and that's the word. You see, from an earthly perspective, the future hope of Israel was to be given the promised land and to inherit it and take possession of it. For the church, our hope is a heavenly inheritance that exists literally. It's an inheritance of the saints of light, of other Christians. And we share in it together. And this inheritance, says Peter, 1 Peter 1.4, is imperishable and undefiled and unfading and kept in heaven for you. It's our glorious reward that can never be taken from you. It is secure. It is yours. No matter what happens in life, no matter what trials you might face, no matter how bad you blow it, it is secure and God is God has ordained it to be so. And we know it. We know it for a fact. How do we know it? Because He's already given you a down payment of it. You say, James, what are you talking about? Well, flip with me to Ephesians chapter 1, if you will. Here Paul is is writing to the church in Ephesus, the Ephesian believers, and he's speaking along the same topic, along the lines of our future hope and what God has done for us. And he writes, beginning in chapter 1, verse 13, he says, In Him, speaking of Christ, In Him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee or down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. As proof of your position in Christ, as proof of your future inheritance, God has sent His Spirit to dwell within you as a down payment as a promise, as it were, that you are sealed in His kingdom forever. And it's just, it's life transforming, the Holy Spirit. And it's just a glimpse of what is to come. So that even though you exist in a fallen world, even though you might struggle against sin and trials and temptations, 
As a Christian, you can still experience what true love is, what true joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control is. It's radically different than what you used to experience in the domain of darkness. And it's just a glimpse of what life is, the inheritance is to come. It's a real inheritance of eternal life and a quality of life and a place to dwell with our great God and King forever. It's our glorious hope and it's non-perishing. And this, this is why Paul, he's writing this and he's like, you're having a lifestyle of thanksgiving and joy because look what the Lord has done for you. And I can't convince you of this. This is God's word, it is true, but you have to examine your own life. And you be honest with yourself and you say, you know what, if I'm a Christian, I know where I was headed. I was in darkness, I didn't know God, I didn't love God, I lived for myself. And then one day, whether it was through the, the sharing of a friend or a church service you went to, something happened and a light clicked on in my brain. And I understood. I'm a sinner and I need God's forgiveness. And my life has never been the same. Yeah, I've had troubles. Yeah, I've had difficulties. But I know God now. I know that He's faithful. I know that He loves me. And He's prepared a place for me. So what do you do with this practically? This inheritance? What can shape life more than the perspective of knowing what awaits you in the future life? You see, the thing is, non-believers, they place their hope in the things of this world, don't they? Right? They, 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 they worship the things of this world and they cling to it as hard as they can. They try to stay as young as long as they can. They try to, try to have as much money as possible or as much fame or glory as possible. But it's not so with you. Because now that the light has been turned on, you understand that those things don't last. Those things can't provide fulfillment in life. They are like life itself, a vapor that is here one minute and gone the next. In fact, you can see life speeding ahead before your very eyes. Just a second ago, you were in junior high. Or just a second ago, you were getting married or your firstborn was being delivered. And now, where are you? Life is but a vapor and we understand that. And so we don't glory or live for the things of the world. It's not wrong to have those things. It's not wrong to have money or to appreciate the things of the world. But it's not what's most important in your life. What is most important? Your relationship and walk with Jesus Christ. Your husband or wife's walk with Jesus Christ. Your children's walk with Jesus Christ. That's what is going to last. How you serve the Lord Jesus Christ and encourage others to do so, that is what is going to echo in eternity. It's not what you wear or what job you have or the home you live in. It's good to remember this when the things of the world crowd our lives out. And we've all experienced that, don't we? Something's going on at work, something's going on at school, something with a family member. And it's just so, it gets so easy to focus on the here and now instead of the, the long term. And it's true, the here and now needs to be dealt with. It's not to say you cast it aside, but whatever's happening in the here and now, we can have joy. 
And we can be thankful to God knowing, look, in the scheme of things, God, you've done so much for me and I'm going to live for you. This is the essence of the Christian hope. Do you remember that? You want to explain to somebody what it means to be a Christian? Well, first you tell them where you were. And let them know that that's where they are. Show them their sin and remember your sin. And then you can tell them where you are now and why you live the way you do. You're a citizen of, uh, of the kingdom of Christ and you want to bear His image and please Him. Because you know where you're going. It's a heavenly inheritance with the saints of lights. And we, we're going to sing, just like we were, what glorious songs we sang this morning, weren't they? And we're going to sing a more around the throne together in eternity. I've often told the students that when they get there to meet on the right side of uh, the heavenly pew, just so that we'll know where to see each other. So I'll extend that to you as well. We'll be on the right side. I don't know if there's going to be a big organ or what's going on, but just on the right. Remember and be encouraged by these truths. Remember what God has done for you. How great is our God. It begins with God and ends with God. And what a joy it is to proclaim the works of Him in our life, isn't it? Remember that. Let us, let's pray together. Lord, we give thanks for all that You've done for us. We recognize we were helpless and lost in this world, but that You sent Your Son to be our light in life. Lord, He was the, the light in the world. And the darkness could not overcome it. Thank you for giving us an eternal hope, a living hope. Lord, and we pray that we would be citizens who are are pleasing to your sight, servants in your kingdom, Lord, that you would extend your kingdom through us, that you would glorify your name through us as we seek to grow in our knowledge of you and live for you, our great God and King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.